know today I just woke up And I like said this. No, instead of waiting on a good day Waiting around, through ups and downs Waiting on something to happen I just said Welcome back, everybody, to the Sideline Hustle podcast. Let's get right into it. Today, we have a very special episode as Ralph Friedgen takes us on a journey through his 43-year coaching career with some hilarious stories and incredible insight about the business of coaching and the inner workings of the game of football. For anyone who may not know, Coach Friedgen retired in 2015 after a legendary 43-year career as a college and professional football coach. He was the head coach at the University of Maryland for 10 seasons from 2001 to 2010, where he finished with a 75-50 overall record, a 5-2 record in bowl games, one ACC championship, a National Coach of the Year award in his first season, and an ACC Coach of the Year award in his last season. Prior to that, he won the Broyles Award in 1999 as the offensive coordinator at Georgia Tech, which was awarded to the top assistant coach in all of college football. He coached in Super Bowl 29 as the offensive coordinator for the San Diego Chargers in 1995 and won a national championship as the offensive coordinator at Georgia Tech in 1990. Most of the material for this episode was from our first ever conversation for the Sideline Hustle, which I recorded from my phone while sitting next to him on his couch in Charleston, South Carolina with his wonderful wife, Gloria. It's a little bit, figuring this out for the first time, just some technical difficulties. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know me, I'm always trying to go too fast. and I was trying to call plays before I even knew how to draw one up. That's why you make a lot of mistakes and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what was your mindset when you knew you had a big time recruit coming on campus? I was going to just be myself, you know. I wasn't going to be anything that I wasn't, you know, and sometimes that hurt me. Sometimes it helped me. But, you know, when the, if the kid was going to come to my school, I wasn't going to have him see somebody that I wasn't. You know, I mean, I just not who I am. You know, you pretty much know who I am, when I, you know, when you meet me. And, and, and I think trust is a, a really important thing. If you if you try to act to be someone that you're not, the kids, the kids see through that so fast. And, and some kids like it and some kids, you know, don't like it. I personally wouldn't like it if I was a kid. I try to treat them like I would want to be treated. Now, there's other coaches probably a lot more successful than me that you know try to put on the you know try to impress them and you know this and that and so on and so forth and promise them the world. And, you know, I I just you know I, I never promised the guy a position. I never even promised them their number. You know, and a lot of guys that's what they promise. You know, I just I just felt like the guy. The number of things should be a seniority. You know, if I got kids that have been in my program for five years and they wanted a certain number, they should have that over some freshman just coming in. And eventually he'll get the number, if, you know, if that's what he really wants. But I just didn't do that, <laughs> you know. And a lot of these guys have, you know, double numbers and all that. I'm not smart enough to figure out who's on special team. I think that's one thing that we all appreciate about you, Coach, is that you, you don't really change for anybody. No, I'm not. You know, I just... You know, I got a lot of faith in who I am, and you know, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be straight up with that kid the whole time. So why why would I want to change that recruitment? But you know, I lost kids that way too. So you know, you know, instead of I was too too frank or too abrupt, you know. But you know, I always looked at football as 
a learning experience, not just as a, a football player. I, I, I would hope that our players were developing life experiences that were going to help them over in life itself, you know, because every day is not a great day on the football field. And when you get into the real world, it's the same way. It's how, how can you overcome these things? So a lot of the things that you're dealing with from a day-to-day standpoint, I think that's where the, the education really comes in for an, a college athlete that the normal students don't get. I mean, they have their regular life, you know, no doubt, no doubt that there's more stress, there's more to, to go to class and to, to be a student and still be a major college football player or basketball player. You're, you're working your way through school. You're earning that money. It is not an easy existence, but what you're learning and to do that, that a normal student sh- should make you a better competitor when you go out into the real world and have to compete against that individual that didn't go through the hardships and the competitiveness that you were doing while you were in school. And I, I really believe that that's what helps make people successful in life. You know, I had three girls, so I was always looking at my players as my sons, and I wanted them to be able to gain that advantage because we're we'll get, we're preparing you for the rest of your life. We're not preparing you for the next four years. We're preparing you for the next forty years. And that's how I that's how I looked at coaching football. It's, yeah, winning is part of that. Learn how to win is part of that. But when you learn how to win on the football field, all of those same traits carry over into real life. Well, I think what I bring to the table is probably experience coaching for forty three years, and also from being a head coach. What's going on, everybody? This is your host, Drew Lieberman. What up? This is Gary Nova, your everyday quarterback. And you are now listening to the Sideline Hustle Podcast. Here's two guys, one guy who coached in the Big Ten and one guy who played in the Big Ten, talking about their experiences. And I'm like, you did do a good job of getting rid of the football. I mean, yeah, sometimes I got rid of it to other teams. Right, 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 right. From the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach So your first job, you were a GA at Maryland? Yeah, I guess so. I was a, I was a graduate assistant and then Roy Lester got fired and Coach Claiborne came in. He asked me what I wanted, I told him I couldn't take any money and that was the right price for him. <laughs> so, um, what he told me, he said, you've never been a GA, let's work for this guy. That's what they, just did. so you know, that's what they said about you when you got hired. That's what everyone, that's what everyone told me. They were like, listen, you've never, you've never been a GA until you work for this guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe Coach Payton would be happy with that. Yeah. Well, I got my master's. I coached spring ball. Then I went, was going to go back in the fall. Coach Claiborne wasn't going to hire him. Frank Beamer was the graduate assistant. He already had four guys. And Coach Ross, Coach Redding, went into Coach Claiborne and said, we need this guy. You need to keep him. And I was the last guy to get on, even though I played at Maryland for Bob Ward, for Tom Nugent, for Lou Saban. You know, I, I put all that time in and no one seemed to want to you know, help me, even though I was a Maryland graduate. Mm-hmm. I knew this is what I wanted to do. He actually wrote to every Division One coach in America. It was like 100 
20 letters we sent out. A lot. And we still have the rejections at the lake. We were reading them a couple of years ago. I should, I should uh, uh, like Joe Paterno, Daryl Royal, Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant. I mean, I, they, they, they wrote back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bear Bryant said, I already have too many assistants. <laughs> I don't need another one. <laughs> yeah. Lee Corso, who recruited me. recruited you. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you got rejected from 120 people then. From not everybody wrote back. Not everybody wrote back, yeah, but that means they weren't offering either. <laughs> yeah. I think I had $50 in the bank. Coach Ross asked me if uh, I'd be interested in going with him to sit with him. And he was actually in the bathroom, in the locker room when he asked me. I thought it was very apropos. <laughs> he got the job. The next day, he took Frank Beamer and myself into his office and offered us coaching position at the Citadel for $11,000. Frank and I thought we struck it rich. So we went down to the Citadel and Frank and I shared an office together for five years. And then he, he got a job at Murray State. So he left the Citadel, went to Murray State and I stayed two more years. Jimmy Laycock got the head job at uh, William & Mary and I went there with William & Mary and that was I can't believe he's still there. I mean, we went there, it was such a bad situation. The coaches had to bring the dummies out on the field. So we had to line the fields, we had to bring the dummies out. We, we, we started preparing for a three o'clock practice about noon. Mike Mahoney was our defensive line coach. It was his job to line the field. He never put hashes on. <laughs> Jimmy goes, where are the hashes? He said, oh, we need hashes? <laughs> we had one quarterback, he went, he played both sides for the spring game. Uh, it was a joke. That's insane. That, the, the equipment guy quit, so we had a woman that would hand out the jocks, the socks, and the towels. Guys are walking up there, bare ass naked, and the girls handed them the... <laughs> and I thought, before long, I was doing the same thing. It's right. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I was there one year, and Frank got the job at, head job at Murray State, so he called me. I left William and Mary and went to Murray State. Strange deal out there. I mean, we would go into games and Frank say to me, well, three of the officials are ours, four of them are theirs. <laughs> you kind of know. We, we lived in a dry county. We had to go to Paducah, Kentucky, which was like almost 45 minutes to an hour away. If somebody in the neighborhood was going to Paducah, they went through the whole neighborhood and took your orders for booze. Then Coach Ross called and said he got the job at Maryland and wanted me to be the coordinator at Maryland. He said he only thought he had one quarterback and that was Stan Gelball. When we got there, we had Boomer Esiason and Frank Wright. I had probably one of the better offensive lines I ever coached. We went eight and three, I think, our first year. Just meant and this win the ACC tournament, uh, the ACC championship. And then the next three years, we won it. The last year, the Len Bias thing happened and we played North Carolina. We were up in the game, it was like, 15 or 10 seconds left in the game. They're down by three points. They had no timeouts left on the clock, supposedly. And they run a draw play, and they get the ball down to the 30-yard line. The game should have been over, and they call timeout. And the clock said no timeouts, and they, they, they said they had one timeout left. The guy kicks the field goal, ties the game going over time we lost. The officials are running off the field. Bobby Ross is chasing them, and there's a gate that goes around that stadium and they get on the other side of the gate and Bobby reaches over the gate and grabs the official and it really looked bad on TV. Yeah. And so they suspend Bobby for the next game. Then I, we're getting dressed on Monday and 
I look over at Coach and his whole back of his leg is totally black and blue. I said, what happened to you? He goes, I pulled my hamstring chasing the official. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, we stayed there for five years, won three ACC championships. And then Bobby resigned because of the chaos with Glenn Bias. He was going to go to Buffalo Bills as a special teams coach. And then it was on a Sunday. We went to church. Gloria and I came over to say, he lived right by the church. So we went by to say goodbye to him. And he was on the phone with Homer Rice. And he said, told his wife, Alice, who's whole route there. And he came out and said, I've been offered the job at Georgia Tech. You want to go with me? Frank wanted me to go to Virginia Tech with him. Frank was going to pay me more money than to go to Georgia Tech, but after our Murray situation, I thought my wife would be happier in Atlanta than we would in Blacksbury. Right. So we went to Atlanta with Bobby and you know, started out not great. We had a free safety and cover two. He'd come up at the line of scrimmage and they'd throw him post patterns over his head. George is screaming, what is he doing? <laughs> He's going nuts at the secondary coach, you know? I'm getting ready to go recruit up to New York. I'm getting on a plane and fly up there and I pick up the paper and the kid had an agent who was paying him $50 a tackle. If he was the leading tackler of the game, he got all this money. And I'm reading this in the paper. So I called George. I said, you know why that guy was making plays up at the line of scrimmage from cover two? Because he got paid so much money if he <laughs> led in tackles that game. He didn't care how many touchdowns they threw over his head. <laughs> Swear to God. So that kid was suspended. You know, oh, it was a joke to go two and nine, three and eight, dealing with all this stuff. Bobby almost quit three times was so frustrating. We went that whole spring being very positive with him and lost the first three games of that season. And then all of a sudden, once we once we started winning, I don't know if the confidence kicked in or whatever, but we took off. I mean, we were beating teams who were way underdog by 25, 30 points. We had an open week after the third game. Coach sent all the coaches out recruiting except George and I. He told me to break down the defense, what, what he thought the weaknesses of the defense was, and he had George do our offense. So George says to me, you only got two playmakers on your whole team. He said, you guys, nobody can make a play. You got Jerry Mays, who was our little tailback, and Sean Jones, quarterback. Get the ball in those two guys' hands, because nobody else can make a play. That's what I did. But seven out of our last eight games. Wow. And I told him where I thought he was weak, you know? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It really was pretty cool. Georgia, Georgia Tech, we took the job. We had no clue what a rivalry that is. We take the job and people would get on, call us up on our phone. It wasn't cell phones, and they'd call a house and start cussing us out and barking. Ruh, ruh, go home, man. What the <laughs> My daughter would come back and say, Dad, these people are just cussing me and saying bad things to me. And, and then when we lost to them, when the first game we lost to them, Oh my God, my Kelly would come home crying how the kids were so bad to her. So finally I said, this is enough enough. We're going to start kicking their ass. Yeah. We wouldn't allow anybody in our family to wear red. When George was head coach, some kid came out on the field with red shorts for like a work workout. Took the shorts off. The kid did the workout in his jock strap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today, today. <laughs> You would, we would go up to that game. Of course, we'd stay in Atlanta and then we'd drive the bus up. When you drive the drive up there, you see the enormity of the, like every 10 cars is a red car. And then there's one gold car going up there. And then you get in the stadium, beautiful stadium. It seats about 75,000, maybe more now. It's just a great place to win. I was at Georgia Tech nine years. We beat them five times. I should have beat them two more times. Yes. Yeah.
And of course, when you drive home from Athens, you go through these back roads and the people come out and throw you the bird. They, they just hate each other so bad. Yeah. I said, hey, we're number one again, guys. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you at Georgia Tech before you guys won the national championship? This was our fourth year. So we went two and nine, three and eight, seven and four. And that was when you won like seven straight or seven out of the last seven eight? Seven out of eight. And then we went 11, all in one. Wow. And then the next year we went eight and four, kind of like after the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks they're the reason why we won last year, but it was really because we were a team. That's why we won. Bobby got a call from Bobby Beathard and said he was going to take the San Diego job. We didn't have a whole lot of choice, either going to San Diego or we got to see if we can get the head coaching job at Tech. Or And, and we were very happy at Tech. It mm -hmm. wasn't like we were not happy there. My, my oldest daughter, when we told her we were going to San Diego, she just fell down and started kicking her feet like that. Was she 13, I guess then? Well, she would have gone into the 10th grade, Ralph. She was not excited about moving. You know, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's difficult. We went to San Diego and then we lost our first four games at San Diego. I remember Spanos called Bobby and said, what's going on? I think Bobby told me that he told me how long did it take you to become a millionaire or a billionaire? He said, 25 years. He said, well, it's not gonna take us that long to have a winning season. <laughs> and then we won like 11 in a row, made the playoffs, they hadn't made the playoffs in like forever. Right. And that, that's pretty exciting making the playoffs in the NFL. It, it, everything gets ratcheted up. As soon as they can find somebody that's as good as he is and makes less money than he does, he's on the bus. You know, that's the way it is. I mean, so, I mean, it's cold, hard. That's the way it is. It's about salary cap and production. As long as you're producing and you make a good number, you're good, you know. But if you don't produce and you and, and someone else does and they got, they're cheaper than you, you're gone. So it's a very competitive situation. You've got to be ready to go every single day you're there, you know. My only advice to anybody going into pro football, you go in there and don't have any friends because every guy is out to get your job. You compete every single day in everything you do. Don't worry about being one of the boys. You'll be one of the boys if you win a position. That Rodney Harrison that's on TV and all the time, he, he was like that. He's a tough ass now. He was. He, was. But he wouldn't do any of the, um, the hazing. He wouldn't sing a song. I even did a rap song. That, you know, I say, let's do this one time. They won't be bugging my ass anymore. So I put together the, the song. I could always rhyme things pretty good. So I put the road to the Super Bowl by the name of my rap. I came out on the stage and I had to turn my hat sideways, you know, and they start going boom, 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 boom. And Billy Ray Smith, his wife was a TV person. They taped the damn thing and it was on TV. But you know what? They, those guys didn't bother me one bit from there on out. This is when you were a rookie coach in the NFL? Yeah, they make everybody do everything, you know. Rodney didn't do anything. He wouldn't He wouldn't get up and sing. He wouldn't do anything. So we're playing the Giants in Germany, and they went and got him in about 3 o'clock in the morning, beat the hell out of him, took him downstairs, put him in the lobby on a chair, taped him stark naked in the chair in the lobby of the hotel and left him there. <laughs> I said, Ronnie, all you had to do was sing there. <laughs> right. So that was 92, I think. 93, I don't think we made the playoffs. And he fired Jack Riley. John Freeze had a golf tournament. Bobby held a, called a meeting, gave an invitation to come to the golf tournament. But we had a meeting, so we all went to the meeting except Jack Riley. Mm -hmm. He goes and plays in the golf tournament and gets a hole in one and wins a par. And 
sold the car for like seventy thousand dollars. I think that was his doom though. And right. Bobby let him go and then made me the coordinator. We picked last. We picked twenty eighth out of twenty eight teams back then. It was only twenty eight teams. And should have put money on it. Yeah, mm -hmm. we really should. It, it was kind of interesting because a couple of preseason games we played fairly lousy. I realized in the NFL, you're better off taking the blame than pointing the blame. Mm -hmm. So I kind of go up and say, you know, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. You know, we can get this better. We did stuff to get better. In 1994, Ralph's first season as the full-time offensive coordinator with San Diego, he helps bring them all the way to the Super Bowl before they lose to Steve Young, Jerry Rice, and the 49ers in Super Bowl 29. So, you know, we were there and then, you know, things kind of started going south and, I, and then I went back to Georgia Tech and we went to four straight bowl games when I was there. And, and then the Maryland job came open. I took that, right. did that for 10 years. And we went down and played Florida State and it's 31-31 going into the fourth quarter and we turned the ball over three times and we lost the game 50. They end up scoring two touchdowns beat us. So Bobby Bowden, he comes up to me after the game. He goes, buddy, you just can't turn the ball over and expect to win. I said, no <laughs> Sherlock. Yeah, I need you to tell me that. <laughs> but he always called me, he never called me by my name. He always said, that offensive coordinator over there. Hmm. Then they would ask me, I said, that old coach over there. I started right. doing it back to him. A year ago at the Peach Bowl, he come up and said, Ralph, how you doing? I said, you know, as long as we've been playing each other, it's the first time he ever called me by my first day. <laughs> he started laughing. <laughs> my last time I played him and he um, he was out, you know, he, he go out and talk before the game, which I used to hate. So he's over there kind of looking around like this. I go up to him and say, oh, I said, that's I couldn't find you. And he said, you're hard to miss. I said, not for a guy your age. <laughs> so I used to jab him right back. Right. And how long have you retired in between Maryland and Rutgers? 2010, and then when I went to Rutgers, 2014. Yeah. So was third, you were retired three years and fourth year, and you went back in. What a journey. You know, I was just talking last night. I was just thinking, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. Yeah. Because I hadn't, I haven't said a lot of those stories in a long time. Just yeah. To bring them back and even think about them. Yeah. You know, it was, I don't know, sitting here thinking, God, did I do all that? Mm -hmm. you know, did I experience all that? Yeah. The one thing I, I, when I went to pros, then there was always something in my mind that was missing. And I never knew what it was. I never knew what it was until I went back to Georgia Tech. And Covington, the guy number 17, he hated me when I was there. He was one of these kids that he never felt he got the ball enough. Never felt I did a good job of calling, okay? Even in, even in the national championship. I brought the kid to my office and I sat down and explained to him my preparation. I said, I'm not just calling these plays out of ad. I work at this thing. So when I go back to Georgia Tech, I bring the, the kids in to talk to them, like I always do. And 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 George had hired Covington as the academic counselor. Hmm. And these offensive players are coming in, they're saying, you know, he's saying, Mr. Covington says, you're the, just the guy we need here. I said, what? He said, yeah, he said, he said you're a lot like Coach O'Leary only on offense, and that you're gonna really make this good. I said, Tom Covington told you that? So I went upstairs to see Tom, you know? I said, these kids are telling me that you think I'm like the eighth wonder of the world. I said, you hated my guts. He goes, coach, since I've graduated, I've come to appreciate more than what you did to me, did for me, you know? Yeah. And he said, you're, you are just what they need here. They need some discipline and they need this and that. Well, you know, when I went to Maryland, when we would play Georgia Tech, whether we got beat or whatever, I'd be the last guy out of the locker room. 
Tom Covington was a weight committee, even though he wasn't working at Georgia Tech, just wow. to say hello. Yeah. So what I what I discovered, what was missing at pro football was the impact that you really have on kids' lives. Yeah. And that was what probably I, I still miss in a way, but in another way, I still have these kids calling me, seeing how I'm doing, thanking me, texting me on holidays and whatnot. So obviously you did do something for these kids. I don't see a lot of pro players doing that for me. Right. That to me was pretty important, you know, and it's probably one of the things that I really enjoyed about coaching because of the experiences, not only that I had, but the experiences that my players had. They can look back with really good memories, mm-hmm. regardless of how we've done, you know. Mm-hmm. And they seem to remember probably more things than I really remember. Even some of the things we talked about, you know, I don't even totally recall those, but obviously there was an impact, had an impact in, in you. And Yeah, no, no. Of course, some of them I think they exaggerate. That's, that's all <laughs> part of telling stories. Yeah. And that's all we've got for episode number 10 of the Sideline Hustle podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for giving us your time. Everybody, please follow us right now on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Sideline Hustle. We're posting content every day, including our new project called Teach Tapes, where we break down film and talk about the nuances of the game in 30-second to one-minute segments on social media. You don't want to miss out. Follow us now at Sideline Hustle and subscribe to the Sideline Hustle YouTube channel so you can learn the game from some of the best. DM me on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear your feedback and anything you want to hear from us in the future there's also new content being posted on our website every day the sidelinehustle.com so go check that out as well be on the lookout for new installments of teach tapes this week as well as additional content probably some written articles and sound bites from other members of the sideline hustle team over the next few days happy monday everyone once again thank you for joining us and i will see you guys next week Days and I'm trapped days See I'm talking way back